Um, welcome everybody to the Roycast. My name is Brendan. I'm going to be joined in a few minutes today by my co-hosts Kate and Gabby. Um, but before we do that, we're going to have a little conversation with our guest today. This is episode three, Lifeboats. Um, and for today's episode, we have a guest who has written about film and TV for the AV Club, Vulture, for the film stage, and for RogerEbert.com. Um, he's a good friend. I'm glad he's joining us today. Uh, his name is Vikram Murthy. Hello, Vikram. How's it going, Brandon? Great. Great to be here with you, chatting, chatting it up. Chatting it up, yeah. <laughs> chatting succession. That's right. It's the, it's the show everybody's talking about. We're recording this a little bit uh, closer to the, um, the premiere date. New trailers are dropping. Yeah. We're just starting to ramp up. And I guess what I really wanted to talk to you about was I wanted to get your perspective kind of on the show and the season as a whole, but also talk a bit more about just kind of the economy of TV coverage and kind of what happened with the reaction to this show, which had an interesting kind of evolution. So I guess to start, if you could talk about how you kind of heard about the show and what your reaction to, like, I guess the initial maybe promotion of it, the rollout and basically what your preconceptions of it were before it actually premiered. Right. I I would say that before like the the promos for that show I at least I remember being kind of weak. I I do think that it was a little a little vague about what it was actually about, which is not usually a problem, but you have sort of all the all the early talk was Adam McKay, and this is like a Murdoch family sort of run on it. There was I don't think there was any sort of idea about the tone of the show going in, which is why when I remember uh, getting sort of the AV Club email for like the pre air review, they were gonna they were soliciting pitches. I remember it wasn't super enthusiastic. It was like, oh, by the way, there's this HBO show Succession. Uh, it's like a Murdoch family thing. Does anyone want to cover it? And I'm pretty sure the AV Club covered two episodes. They recapped the first two episodes of the show, and no one was reading it, so they stopped. Um, and, th- I mean, I will say it is probably the one show that has had a strong word of mouth. Uh, like, there there was a strong word of mouth about it, like, prog- progressively throughout the season. And by, like, episode five, episode four or five, it was getting a lot, a lot of media coverage that it wasn't getting before because I think no one knew it was going to be funny. Like I don't think I, I think <laughs> no no one knew it was everyone. I think everyone really thought it was going to be this self serious, plotting sort of HBO drama. No one really knew the tone of it was going to be more pointedly satirical and also just just outright comedic. And I think that you know I, I think I think. It was there was enough there for media Twitter or whatever to like latch onto it, but I I think that there there became a market for succession like writing and coverage halfway through the show that just wasn't there at the beginning, and a lot of that is because what we were talking about, which is that like you know there there's no more there's not a lot of money in recaps anymore unless the show is enormous. There was a time when you know you could recap anything and it would get a lot of eyes because people just wanted to read anything about like their niche favorite show that that time has passed. Like there's, there's, I, I mean, yeah. the, the recaps that make money are like game of Thrones recaps and game of Thrones is over. So no one, no one really knows, but right, exactly. And I think you and I kind of were online pr- around the same time. Like the kind of days of the internet that I feel really nostalgic for, um, 
almost more than any other is like when the TV club was like really active yep. on the avclub.com, the comment sections for, you know, recapping like current shows that are on the air. There was always like really good conversation going on about like Mad Men and like famously community. Uh, but also, you know, they would go back and recap Deadwood and like yeah. every episode of The Sopranos and you would get, you know, good new reviews of those and you get to co- comment and chat about that with everybody. And that just like hasn't, you know, as the economy for these kinds of things has shrunk, that kind of the venues for that kind of conversation to happen has basically been restricted to like Twitter because we're not on forums anymore. Right. And it's just, it's not the same <laughs> where you can get a lot of, you know, mostly intelligent people together to make jokes and also provide analysis. It just doesn't exist anymore. I was, I was talking about this actually with someone a couple days ago that the, like the period of like 2008 to like roughly early 2013 at, at TV club was they, I mean, they covered everything. I I don't think people remembered, like they covered like shows now that no one would ever write about, but they were, they were like adamant about the idea of like, covering the the breadth of television so they would say would solicit like people who were you know knew a lot about reality tv people who knew a lot about like very niche cartoons and stuff like that and i mean even at the time the tv club classic stuff which is always my favorite where they would cover like sopranos and deadwood and all these shows uh no one was reading it no no one was reading it even then but they did it anyway because they could because everyone was reading all the contemporary stuff there was enough money to fund the stuff that no one else was reading all of that is all of that is gone, and it's really sad. I am also very nostalgic for it because I think that like th- that organic way to build an audience and to get like eyes on these writers that that there's no market for that anymore. But like a lot of the writers I've always liked, they would just recap these shows that because they just they just they personally liked it, and the audience would grow organically, and that's how you knew their names and stuff. Like I think that was always really cool. But for Succession, I think. There's a lot of buzz about it now. There will be there will be a lot of recaps of Succession in the coming season. Like I think the Ringer will probably do one. I would be shocked if the AB Club doesn't do one. I I think I think it will get a lot more coverage just because of the word of mouth that grew about that show. In a way, because I think I think I can't be certain, but I I, I would be curious to look at the early ad like the early advertising of that show, and I think the early like log lines about that show i think i don't know if it was deliberately misleading or if hbo just punted the marketing but i they did a i think if they did a real disservice to what what the tone of that show was actually uh like about yeah you know it's interesting um i've had this conversation with a lot of people and people generally seem to agree on this line that the initial marketing was misleading but having gone back and look at some of those promotions and you know even looking at the ones for the new season um, I don't see that there's really a difference in the way they're promoting the new season necessarily. That's and I'm not sure I agree that the original ones were actually misleading. I think it was just very hard to communicate what the actual agenda of this show was. Um, I, th- I think it's just a very difficult thing to get across in a short promo because the thing it's doing, I'm try to sum this up as pithily as I can, but the thing it's doing where it's, you know, the, the, tone and style are pretty farcical and profane in this sort of veep Ianucci mode but the actual agenda of the show is far more dramatic and takes its characters seriously and has this broad classical tragic thrust to it yes it's just not something you're going to get across in a 30 second or even a two minute promo i i wholeheartedly agree i i think you're probably right 
what I what I think is interesting though is that I I, I think I mean and I and I get why they did this, but I I think that if they had put like if they had foregrounded the Ianucci elements of it a little more, I think there might have been there might have been a little more interest. I had no idea Jesse Armstrong was involved until well into I started watching it. Because because yeah. all everyone talked about was Adam McKay, which is understandable. Adam McKay is the bigger name. I, I get that. But yes. I, I do think that if I had known there was some sort of connection to like to that sort of mode of comedy or that mode of drama, I know a lot more people who would have been much more interested in the show. Like right off the bat. But like I think a lot of people just didn't know. Um the other thing I think is interesting is that I think a lot of people were just not like I and this is just timing. I, I as I as I wrote in my uh, I, I wrote a blurb about Succession for the AB Club for the best of TV of that year. I was just like, you couldn't pick a like a more sh- a show that is not friendly to this era, <laughs> like of just watching. Like I don't th- I think a lot of people didn't want to watch about like a show about a conservative media empire uh, in 2018 or 2017. And I I don't I don't think people knew. I don't think people were just super psyched to watch that show. And then yeah. they watched it, and then everyone was like, "Oh shit, no! Actually, actually, we are." <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. One of the other things that was interesting to me, looking at some of the early coverage of the show, because I went back and we're recording these episodes a little bit out of order. But there's, uh, I think, in one of the next couple episodes, we talk about an early New York Times piece about the show, which seemed like very much trying to pitch the show to like home turf. You know, like right. the people who read the New York Times style section, it's like, hey, this is your kind of show. You know, these are your people, et cetera. Uh, Frank Rich is a producer. If you're a Times reader, you know Frank Rich, et cetera. And I, I wonder if there was sort of a split mission and sort of not just how, but who to pitch the show to. Is this going to be for, you know, the New York Times set or is it going to be for the people who read AV Club recaps, et cetera? I, I think you're right. I was having a, I had a brief conversation about this with a, a friend of mine who is, who, who likes succession, but is sort of wary of it and doesn't, who isn't like completely on board. And I think he just, he's like, I think that they succession, like his argument is that succession sort of wants to have it both ways with the, with the lifestyle and elite porn aspect. He's like, I think they really get off on, on the sort of like the, the, the rich people shit while also taking the piss out of it. But, and I, but my whole thing is like, there's nothing aspirational about the show. Like none of, none of the show, there's no aspirational quality to it. It's all just like tragedy and and farce, like you say. Like to me, it's like I don't watch the show and I I don't like want that life. And I think that I think that you're what you're talking about with the pitching to the New York Times sec. I think that there was there was an idea early on that this would this would appeal to a sort of like upper middle class, upper class New York Times, like Upper West Side Manhattan kind of kind of sec. And then everyone started yeah. watching it. And it was like, no, this is this is pitched to people who think all that is bullshit, like all of that is garbage. And there was there was some sort of like misconnection in like between the marketing and the coverage and everything that kind of like like that ultimately helped the show. I think it gave it it sort of leveled it early on for it to like build up steam. I think that if it got so much hype early on, I don't know how successful it would have been over the course of the season. But like you and I felt it when we were watching the show, like. The, the coverage of that thing ramped up significantly episode by episode because a lot of people were catching on to what it was actually doing. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, um, I think the question of whether the show, 
achieve some kind of gratification from the luxury settings is kind of up in the air because I think the show walks a carefully demarcated middle ground with that. It doesn't, um, it doesn't go out of its way to say, Oh, this stuff is, you know, pathetic. It's awful. It's, you know, it's really miserable to be rich. It's like, no, sometimes it is cool. No. Yeah. You get to do cool stuff. Um, I think a good example is kind of the, uh, the gala episode, um, episode four, where, you know, the, you know, it's, it looks pretty cool. looks like a nice event, et cetera, but the focus is not on, you know, all the nice food and everything. The focus is on Connor freaking out about the frozen butter and, uh, <laughs> You know, just the the incredibly high strung and oblivious personalities that are at work here. I think uh, I think I think a reason that that maybe uh, doesn't come across all the time as like a clear you know you know one one or the other being rich is bad versus no it's cool is because the show's not really interested in doing that. It's still it's yep. mostly interested in the characters, but also this kind of thing that I've come to see as a sort of weak spot for the show and that how it evolved its visual language means that it doesn't always paint all this stuff very clearly. Um, you know, I, like you might see on Hannibal or billions or like other shows that have come up with like kind of luxurious surroundings have a very clear kind of visual approach to these settings. And for succession, it's uh, all the camera work is very focused on the characters and on bodies and movement. Um, and it's not so much on the setting. I, th- I think you're right. I also think that if it, I think any show about the luxury set that tries to make the claim that being rich isn't at all fun is lying. I think they're just fundamentally lying. So I, oh, yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't think you can do that without also showing the glamorous aspect of it at all. But I think what is saved by the show is that like Armstrong and and McKay make this very, very clear point very early on. I think that when you're this wealthy, you don't need to rely on common sense. And I think that's where all the comedy comes in. It's like these people have 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 sequestered themselves from any just like practical responsibility of being alive. So they just the disconnect between what they want and how to do it is where the comedy and the tragedy ultimately comes in. I, I think that these people like they, these people are well versed in like Machiavellian corporate tactics, but they also don't know how to like. There's that whole bit where like, uh, uh um. I forget which which one of them. He just doesn't know how to make coffee. Like he's just oh saying, oh Ken- Kendall yeah, yeah he's he just can't, like, he can't find it. he can't find this, his kids coffee things in his yeah, own kitchen his own kitchen yeah. like it's just and, and that's just a small part of it but it's just like of course this guy's never had to make coffee ever in his life like and there's and that sort of like that's a, that's a minute example of like the larger thing of just these people have a lot of ideas and a lot of power but because they've never had to actually fend for themselves a lot of the things that they want to accomplish are just out of out of grasp or if they are in their in their reach uh there's no they don't go to the direct way it's always the indirect way because they're always fucking up in their head that's what i think is fascinating about the show and i think that's what like the satirical elements are pretty clear cut uh at least in that respect I guess um, I guess one question i had for you this is kind of a broader point about tv coverage is you know we we talked about the way that the recap economy, as it was in you know the late aughts, the early teens, supported a lot of other writing. Um, obviously, that's really changed now. And I was I was thinking about you know what you might say the current kind of incentives 
of the market are? Is it basically just you're going to cover your Game of Thrones and nothing else? Because there aren't that many Game of Thrones level shows out there anymore, if there are any. Yeah, I I actually don't know. I I think that it, it is a semi interesting question because there are I think I think from what I what I what I would expect I think shows that are like on HBO will ultimately get some sort of coverage. I think I think there's a certain sort of prestige brand name stuff that will always get a certain amount of coverage. But I think just recaps have been shifted away and it, to like the essay format ultimately. That's where these stuff will get covered. Where like think pieces and essays and that's how you get eyes on stuff. I've been, I've been trying to write about the show Lodge 49 forever because like it's it's a show that's just impossible to recap. Like there's not enough of an audience for anyone to read weekly coverage of Lodge 49. But there's a way to write about it in which you take sort of the broad bird's eye view uh, of a show now that that people will read, which is a shame because I think a lot of the stuff that I like was sort of very narrow, more a more narrow lens and a more sort of granular analysis. I think that stuff is really interesting. But I I think in a post-Game of Thrones landscape, we I don't know what actually drives the money. I actually wouldn't be surprised if it was Succession. I think yeah. that... I, I don't know, like I, but I think that there's enough sort of like media elite coverage of the show that that might actually get get a lot of traffic. But oh yeah, yeah. I mean, that's I, how I feel about like Billions coverage, right? It's yeah. like how many people actually watch Billions? Like, well, I don't know, but the right people watch Billions, so exactly. it gets covered. Yeah. I think I think a show like Barry gets gets a lot of eyes. I think I think something like that. That's just by nature of uh, programming. I find that fascinating. I think like. The HBO's smartest move in a very long time was putting Barry right after Game of Thrones, uh, because like <laughs> because the the, the the it just like there was a two million viewership jump, uh, oh, so yeah. a lot a lot of people were fucking watching that show that they just weren't before. Uh, oh, yeah. And and that incredible like action set piece episode that they aired right after the right big after. zombie battle on Game of Thrones that was almost like a one up like you know fuck you we can do a better action scene in you know twenty minutes with right. five percent of the budget. Uh, I think they told Bill Hader, uh, I think he said this, they told him, like, I think a week out of the season two premiere, they're like, oh, by the way, like, uh, we're, we're, you're going to be on after Game of Thrones. They're like, are you kidding? They're like, okay. They were just, they, they were blown out of the water that they would do that. And then they were getting these calls from people who had never, like, watched the show before who were, like, very confused about the plot, but they were watching it. And yeah. that's, I mean, that's how you, I mean, people don't like to think about like old network TV mechanics, but lead-ins are important. Like they are genuinely important. <laughs> like, like no one likes to talk about this, but if you have like a huge show, that's how you get people to watch the next show. Cause a lot of people just won't turn off their fucking TV. Like they'll just keep watching. Yeah, exactly. And Game of Thrones, I guess is one of the few shows that you could still do a lead-in with because so many people felt the urgency to watch it as it a- happened. Absolutely. You actually it's- watch it live. You, yeah, it, it doesn't work for everything, but like that is a clear example of it working. Of just like, like that you look at the viewership numbers, it is stark <laughs> for 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 Barry. But I think I would be curious. Like I think a lot of it is driven. I think a lot of TV coverage online is driven by ultimately stuff like Twitter, stuff like social media. Like the things that I I don't want to be true are ultimately true. Like I think if people are talking about something on Twitter a lot, you could probably sell coverage of it. Because those people are just online anyway, and they'll be reading stuff online. I don't think, I don't think there's a world in which you're going to get like people who don't read the internet to read TV coverage anymore. I think that time has passed. 
But I right. think there's enough. I think there's enough people on the internet who aren't reading TV coverage, and you, if you get them to, then 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 things things start cooking with gas. But uh, no, here's here's the bottom line: no one knows how to make money off the internet. Anyone who tells you they know how to make money off the internet is lying, especially in like digital publications. So it's all just throwing fucking spaghetti at the wall. Like no one, no one knew Game of Thrones would be the fucking cultural behemoth that it was in 20 it is it is now in 2011 like no one knew but it happened and everyone took advantage of it and now with that sort of absence people are going to start throwing spaghetti at the wall and and i wouldn't be i i said this i wouldn't be surprised if succession is the one thing that hit but i'm very curious to see what will happen yeah well i disagree that people don't how to make money off the internet because my aunt you know she she works from home with just her computer and she you know she makes she makes six <laughs> figures just, just with her keyboard uh, okay <laughs> that's good that's i mean i i she, she should be in touch with uh, the vulture capitalists that own a lot of good good publications <laughs> oh no she's, she's just in a lot of comment threads telling people about her business model oh good. oh good <laughs> so so what was your favorite episode overall and where did you land on that Oh, favorite episode overall. Uh, I really like the one where they go. There's like the the club one at the end. I think that one's pretty great. Uh, I, yeah, 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 yeah. I think it's like Tom's bachelor party or whatever. Uh, and <laughs> that's right. Yeah, yeah. I really, I really like that one. I also like the one. I think the one after the one we're covering now is that the is that like the wasp trap thing. I think I, I really yeah. dug that. Yeah, yeah, that one. That one is good. But it's funny. I don't know. Like, I also. I mean, I. I, I should say the other one that that is. I probably would. Pr- I probably say is the best episode is the one where Kendall shits the bed and like he calls the meeting and it fails and it's just like a. It's like a complete protracted farcical nightmare that ends with him like like the best. The I think the most like resonant shot in that whole thing is when he's just walking dazed on the street and they like stop. He stops in like the middle of the crosswalk. Like that stuff is great. I, I think that one is probably the the best one but in terms of like funniest i'd say the 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 bachelor party one is pretty great brendan's smirking over there (laughs) no i really like the boardroom one too i know you guys uh, are are, uh, have that a little bit lower but it's all sort of you know you know you're all you're all just picking various varying degrees of, of great tv i think at that point by halfway through the season for sure for sure so the episode we're here today to discuss is episode three entitled uh lifeboats so there's there's a there's a few kind of subplots going on here, but the main one is uh, Ken uh, sort of stepping in as CEO at Waystar Royco and immediately being confronted with this crisis of uh, how is he going to salvage the company from this situation where the stock is in free fall because the market has no confidence in Ken's leadership. And there's this $3 billion bet that the bank can call in at any moment uh, as soon as the stock falls below a certain threshold, which is any minute now. Well, I, I've always appreciated uh, this episode for its comedy, you know, p- specifically in the um, meeting room with Kendall. But um, on rewatch this time, I, you know, I, I realized it's the first episode where we really get a more intimate picture of Kendall and kind of uh, the degree um, of how kind of devastating his character is. 
you know, and, and how lonely and even the way the episode starts out, you know, it's Kendall alone in the dark and it kind of, that's really the metaphor for the rest of the episode. Um, he is alone. Uh, he has no one he can rely on. Um, he's constantly calling his, you know, pretty much ex-wife, um, or hooking up with her because she's like the last lifeline he has and point of support and um you know as someone who really related to Kendall and um Kendall was really the big selling his emotional arc both in this episode but throughout the season you know was really the part that I uh you know um was drawn to the most so this episode because of that really resonated with me. And, um, you know, I, I, I do think it's quite funny. There are a lot of funny scenes and we get to meet some new people, um, Sandy, Stewie, Nate, but you know, it, it revolves around Kendall and kind of, uh, you know, just what a sad character he is. And yeah, so I guess the meat of this episode is really Ken. So let's try and get some of the other subplots out of the way so we can just talk about <laughs> what's going on at the company because this is uh, the appearance of, I think, uh, uh, my personal favorite character, which is Nate Safrelli, um, uh, Shiv's uh, ex uh, politi- and, uh, political consultant. Oh, yeah, Nate is the best part of the show. You know, when Nate's not on screen, <laughs> everybody should be asking, you know, where's Nate? Um, so we meet him for the first time uh, in this hotel room where Shiv is looking for someone to dig up dirt on Marsha. I mean, this 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 plot line just sort of is a continuation of the conflict with Marsha and Shiv that started in the last episode where she's asserting her authority, you know, over sort of Logan's state of mind or her well-being. She's not allowing anybody to see Logan. It's now been, what is it, something like 10 days to maybe two weeks since the accident. It's kind of implied maybe a little more than a week. I think that the time they the timeline's totally screwed, um, and, and they tr- they you know it's just, they say it's four days, but I think uh, I don't fall think there's a real true timeline that's actually accurate to days. Um, but they do say it's four days when she goes and you know b- barnstorms and uh, into uh, Kendall's office and says gives them the puppy eyes, saying you you know you know you need to go see dad. So maybe over just the course of a weekend or something like that. Uh, But she's still not able to see her father. And so she is looking for someone to dig up dirt on Marsha. So she turns to uh, Nate. And uh, this is the beginning of sort of this through line with Shiv that is going to continue because Nate is both this link to sort of her past, both sort of in her career and personally as somebody she was romantically involved with. Well, I mean, I think Shiv essentially is kind of bored. Um, and I think dipping her toes back into a previously romantic relationship and then also having that sort of intersect with her career, which, you know, essentially is just her, um, kind of at the, as this cutthroat political strategist or sort of wannabe cutthroat political strategist, um, clearly in her role working with high profile candidates because of her last name, um, and, you know, I think Shiv, Shiv and Tom, as we kind of see in, in one of the first scenes of their home together, which, by the way, I noticed that uh, their dog is called Mondale, which I thought was pretty funny. <laughs> very, very Tom-esque. Yeah. And, you know, you can kind of see Tom, the way that he just sort of unconditionally worships her at her altar. Um, and I think for Shiv, 
you know, that's something that is probably in response to some of the instability that was her child and her relationship with her parents. And I think, I don't know if she necessarily thinks that she's settling for Tom, but um, there's something about that relationship for her that feels very safe. But Shiv, um, (laughs) you know, she's aptly named uh, Shiv. And, you know, she kind of has this, you know, this side of her that I think maybe, you know, out of boredom, out of wanting to be challenged, where, um, you know, she's willing to uh, get involved in things that are uh, maybe not necessarily in the best interest of those that she cares about or herself. So I think bringing Nate into the picture, who really is nothing special. Um, <laughs> to, I don't I don't think he's anything special. <laughs> um, but clearly there is a robust sexual tension there. Um, you know, and that's playing with fire when you, you know, have just been proposed to. So for her to kind of bring him in and, and do recon on Marsha, um, you know, and she's very, uh, you know, pushy with Marsha in this episode. We kind of see the beginning, not the beginning, and we saw the beginning in the second episode, but, you know, this is when she really gets in her face um, in the scene where she finally, you know, goes to the house. She brings Tom and, uh, and Connor with her and says hi uh this is tom and connor and they're both <laughs> together they're over 12 feet and we want to see my dad now and you know you're you're kind of wondering what's going on there with Marsha being um you know so reluctant to let anybody see logan um i think shiv likes to play with fire a little bit um and, and we start to see that with uh her messing around with her ex-boyfriend even though it's under the pretense of work and, you know, the way that she starts to kind of get sneaky with Marsha. Um, and Marsha calls her out for it. This won't be the last time she, she gets called out by Marsha. But um, yeah, we kind of get hints of what Marsha is about and like what she's capable of. And definitely the, the implication is that Shiv is sort of in over her head dealing with Marsha, I think, because we don't learn too much about her uh, from the sort of background check that's done on her. But what we do learn is that it looks like somebody sort of cleaned up her past at some point and that there is something to hide and that she's in a position to have it hidden. Uh, And that coupled with the fact that she approaches Shiv and says, hey, I know you did this. I know that you had this check done on me. If you have any questions, you can bring them to me directly uh, is very sort of another instance of her asserting sort of her power and that Shiv should know better sort of than to tangle with her. I also think there's this like recurring thing of like these characters wanting to like broadly and publicly like lord and exert their power over other people. And it happens in sort of broad ways and subtle ways. And I think like a broad example might be when like, I think is it, is it Roman who just basically like browbeats his gym trainer into like, like just like just to fuck with him it's is just like so good. It's just yes. like like I could sue you to Kingdom Come. There's that, but if you want to bring it to like Shiv, which is that she's already sort of, you know, her career sort of betrays like the family's political ideology anyway, right? Because she's like this like, you know, sort of liberal leaning, working for like a Democratic candidate, and her whole family is this conservative media empire. So there's that, but it's also like let's see what I can get out of this ex boyfriend guy. Like let's see what what power I can still wield over this. And it becomes this like 
very public process of our our powers is is in 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 the real world sort of like mostly shrouded in, in money and there's like secrets and all this stuff but the times are like we can really like rich dick someone it's like we're we're, go- we're going to take the opportunity i think that's that sort of plays into it with like shiv and nate too because it's like even though there's this personal connection it's also like Ah, I mean, like, can you do this for me? And, like, you're going to be doing me a favor and, like, blah, blah, blah. There's all that nonsense wrapped into it. Yeah, I mean, how this kind of power just sort of taints all these relationships, right? You know, I I think there's absolutely an aspect to how Nate is sort of aroused by Shiv's status and her power, which is the thing that keeps him coming back to her more than anything about her personally. Um, And that's a really good point to sort of tie that into the subplot with Roman, because I think there, this is another instance, there's another instance in the finale where I think what's going on with Roman, who is always sort of secondary to the key drama, um, is used to maybe echo what's going on with the other characters, particularly with what happens to him in the finale. But uh, we were talking about Shiv, so let's talk about Tom and what's going on with uh, Tom and Greg in this episode. Uh, So Greg, (laughs) he, um you know, now is pursuing his job or um, imagined real or perceived, we're not quite sure yet, with <laughs> Waystar Royco. So, um, we, you know, we kind of get uh, a little glimpse into more into like the playfulness of their relationship. Um, at this point, it's still sort of Tom, um, you know, lording himself over over Greg and and probably makes him feel good now there's another appendage to the family that's kind of like lower on the totem pole than him you know you can tell he's he's really digging that so yeah there's this really great scene where <laughs> greg um you know enters the the waystar hq and and he's at the front desk trying to figure out how to get upstairs <laughs> and the lady at the desk is asking for you know a name and he can't remember tom's last name he can't you know, he says, you know, well, I, I was personally appointed by by Logan Roy. And she's like, okay, so Greg Roy. And he's like, well, yeah. <laughs> I'm, actually, I'm actually a Hirsch. I'm, I'm, I'm a Roy, but, you know, and everything except for name, Tom and Shiv, you see them kind of walking <laughs> in the background, into, you know, through the gates up into the elevators. And, and, <laughs> and Greg is shouting, hey, hey. And, and they kind of just, uh, you know, give him a head nod and keep going. Which is hilarious, and just sort of another way. Like it, it reminded me of the same thing in episode two when you know Tom gets mugged by Shiv. Like just the way that the the Roys and and I guess you know Tom by extension and other some other characters by extension really um, just you know kind of have have no perception about what's going on around them, about what it feels <laughs> like to be powerless. And I, I just how does he? I don't know. We don't really know how he finally gets upstairs, but. He does finally get upstairs, right? <laughs> with it, with his doggy bag in tow. Right. <laughs> Getting cookies from the uh, from the break room, I guess. His, his because... body lacks sustenance. <laughs> <laughs> he's staying in a youth hostel. His he's, that, his that's body so, is <laughs> that that detail is so funny. He's staying in a youth hostel for like eighty dollars. Meanwhile, like, how many guest rooms combined? Right. Yeah, and Tom's immediate reaction is just like, oh, um, <laughs> oh, house wallet, not can I help you? It's just yeah, like, I know, yeah, oh, house God, I don't want to hear about that. A little I mean, moment. You know, Tom, 
mocks his shoes. It's just, it's brutal. Greg's oh, just yeah. getting shat on. At this point, you're kind of still thinking of him like, okay, is he this sort of Jonah character who's solely going to be an outlet for comic relief? You know, like we mentioned, there's a couple moments in this episode that I... I hadn't no I hadn't noticed the last one, but there's two times at least where Greg is in the room when serious conversations are going down, but he's not seen. So the first time is with Stewie and Ken um, chatting in the cafe, and and Greg is sort of there, and he kind of waves, and you know they don't see him. But um, it also happens again at the end of the episode. Sandy Furness and Stewie are on a bench in the park, and. Uh, Greg is walking by and sees them and, and, and so we kind of start to uh, maybe get this idea that Greg is going to be a player in terms of, of what he becomes privy to which right. obviously gets very very serious in, in the coming episodes. Right and we talked about you know we talked about Jonah in the last episode too and it, it is sort of funny the way that you know in the sort of Ianucci verse which succession is sort of a tangent to these they have this love for basically just very tall oafs um, you know the there's Jonah there's uh, Greg there's also Chris Addison on the thick of it um, would be the I think progenitor of this uh, kind of comedy um, but they just uh, something about the verticality and just this very tall, physically imposing, uh, but in no other way imposing character is just intensely funny um, uh, to that group of people. And they are able to, you know, mine sufficient comedy out of it, which I think the show plays with really well in terms of the way that Greg makes his presence known or otherwise is invisible. Um, and there's another instance of, you know, twinning and parallels here where, you know, Tom, who is, you know, kind of just blithely ignoring Greg as he fumbles at the uh, entryway, uh, is also sort of going through a kind of orientation. He's also sort of going in for his first day at work, and these two men are in very similar situations where they are both wanting to be part of this family but are not yet part of it. But, of course, you know, Tom, like most of the other folks of his station, has no sort of sense of solidarity with anybody else in a similar position to him. I, I didn't find, like, the dog bag scene, like, as hilarious as everyone else did. It's, I don't know why, you know, it's just not, for me, it's, I don't know, it just isn't as is as funny. But I, you know, I appreciate uh, the way that their relationship, especially not just in this episode, but over the course of the um, season, um, you know, how it kind of matures and changes and... Um, I had a couple little moments with Greg right before he um, goes to the entryway, um, Waco. Waco? Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> he passes by these guys and he's like, gents? <laughs> and it's just such a small moment. Before he like says the boss Tom, Logan Roy appointed me. I, I never noticed this moment until this rewatch and he's w just walking in and passes like grown up men in suits and gents like, you know, like that's what, you know, he's playing, he's playing grown up and it was so funny. Um, so I do find like him funny and I do find Tom funny and some of the dynamic between them funny, but some of it to me is just a little, I don't know. It's just, it yeah, doesn't see, get there I, I for me. It didn't, it didn't click quite for me yet in this episode, the Tom and Greg rapport. I, I skipped ahead and, and rewatched the next one. And I think episode four is when, you know, it, it really gets 
sort of into into a rhythm and in a group between the two of them. But Brendan, also, you pointed out that uh, the scene where he's like doing his orientation on the computer. Oh yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I mean, so so next time we see Greg, he's sort of sitting in this cubicle. There's not really anybody around, um, and he's just sort of idly watching this orientation video, and it's it's going through sort of the boilerplate legal language for you know diversity and affirmative action type stuff. And I mean, it's just it's so contrived and ridiculous because you contrast that immediately to his left you see a bunch of white guys in suits coming out of a boardroom and um the the orientation video he's watching is like we're in it together and it's like all the staff and it's like 90 percent people of color like jumping up and down like looking really happy and it's just uh it's quite a moment (laughs) it gives you a little bit more of a glimpse into the actual company which um you know and like you know, we see it obviously from the eyes of the executives and and the owners and you know the big wigs, but for just sort of a a peon like Greg who's going through his day at orientation, you know, you kind of do wonder what it's like to work for the company. <laughs> and it'll get uh it's pretty good in the next episode. But I, I know you were talking about how sort of the parallel to family that uh, that video evoked. Yeah, I mean, videos like that, you know, echo the idea of, you know, like the corporation as like this big family, right? Like we're all in this together. We're all a team. We're all a family unit, you know, which is, you know, obviously paralleled in the ways that there are like literal familial connections going on, um, but also in the ways that those connections, you know, don't really exist for anybody um, except out of need and circumstance. A little bit of Greg and Tom here, but it doesn't really feel like it, it gets to sort of peak Greg and Tom until the next episode. But I think it's necessary to sort of, you know, kind of set this stage for, for all of that, all that's to come because they couldn't just throw all of that. What come, what comes in season episode four, they can't really just throw that at you early on. Um, and I think it's smart of the show to sort of titrate it in the way that they did um, the development of their relationship, but we can move on to, you know, the star, which is a, uh, this is a, definitely a Ken episode, and and talk a little about Ken and Stewie, and and what's going on. Just just really quickly, the bit I love in the video is if you listen really closely, they do this whole thing of like we can't discriminate against like you know gender or sexual orientation, and then it gets like really weird near the end where they're like genetic disorders and like and it's just <laughs> like if you if you really follow along like the tail yeah. the tail end of that whole boilerplate is so funny because it's just like, wait, you know, anytime that w- in affirmative action laws are in place, we will strive to comply to meet those laws. It's like, yeah. all right. Good. Good. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Cor- corporate flirt for sure. Yeah. It's like a conservative's dream, how they would, you know, envision like genetic, you yeah. know, Gen- genetic modification. That's like their, yeah. what they think is are li- literally are protected classes. So it's kind of fitting. Sure. Um, Cryogenics. I, I did notice like that moment. And, and also the, I was going to point out exactly what you did, Gabby, which is literally as they're saying diversity, Greg looks over and a group of maybe yeah. 15 white men in suits pass by and you're, it's, it's just such a good contrast. It's so funny. Yeah. 
I hate to break it to you guys, but those disclaimers are fairly, fairly true to what you encounter in those settings. <laughs> uh, just the Protected just the absurdity classes. of reading one of those word for word out loud is probably enough to, to make the joke land there. But yeah, let's get on to the main event. In one corner, you have Kendall Roy. In the other corner, you have literally everybody else in his life who hates him and wants him to fail. So the first sort of big set piece of this episode is the call he has uh, with the bank. They never refer to it as anything but the bank right. that Logan has made this $3 billion deal with uh, that the bill is now coming due on. And before the call, Ken, uh, because he is such a sort of sanguine and rational individual, decides to call his ex and say, you know, how, how should I play this? I mean, what, do, what are you thinking? You know, what's your take on this whole thing? Hulk Hogan uh, or Bruce Banner? <laughs> well, he has no one else. He has That's, I mean, no one else. And she's literally getting their children ready, like, for school <laughs> and, you know, not really. And she's like, but, why don't you ask your people? Yeah. He's like, but you're so good with this. And just uh, just the way he needs her, is, it's so painful. What is Rava's line of work, by the way? Is she in PR? What, what Do we learn I that? I don't think we ever learn what her line of work is. But Natalie Gold, the actress, who, by the way, do you guys recognize her? Uh, specifically, Brendan and Kate, because this is a Leftovers reference. Oh, no, I don't. So she is the... Wait, was she the one that he banged? No. She... No. Okay. No, 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 no. She is the... Oh Mom, God. in the very, very first scene of the yeah! movie, who loses her baby and is oh, freaking wow. out. She's in oh the car gosh. on the oh phone and turns gosh. around and her baby is gone from the, her, the car seat. This is Man. revelatory. Oh, my God. <laughs> right? You always got to look out for the HBO <laughs> casting yeah. connections because they pop very, up so very many in-house. They, they just cross-pollinate, like all of them. Absolutely, yeah. Oh. And I mean, she's great, and she's great in this role. And I, I, I love the fact that she genuinely comes across as like a decent person. I think it'd be a little too easy and a little bit too typical for her to just have been some like gold digging bitch. Like she obviously cares about Ken, and you know, is looking out for his best interest by not stringing him along. Although in this episode, they do, you know, end up hooking up, which. You know, sometimes happens. Um, they're still very much a part of each other's lives. They are, you know, obviously she probably is doing the lion's share of the child rearing, but you know, she she was there at Logan's apartment with the children when Ken came. So, you know, I I, I think Rava is a good person. I think you know, I mean, I don't know, maybe she's not, but I mean, she definitely. There's no reason to believe that she's you know any sort of monster. Um, and, and I think it really exposes sort of Ken's deep-seated emotional issues in, in the way that he needs to continually try and rely on her, win her back, the way he's devastated after they hook up when she says, you know, I just, you know, I, I just want to make this nice. I got a lawyer. He's really nice. Like, let's just, you know, like she's trying really hard. You know, she knows that she's breaking his heart. But at the same time, we know from the very first episode that you know, Ken is an addict. You know, it's very, very hard to to have a romantic relationship with an addict. And I don't think Ken, you know, he might have dealt with his addiction issues, which we definitely know um, in this episode that he, you know, we had that scene with Stewie. Stewie just has to take a bump in the bathroom. And, you know, Ken is sort of looking the other way. Almost nobody is has addiction problems that aren't rooted in some sort of trauma, you know, emotional dysregulation and and i think 
um, for Ken. You know, there's just a great big hole in his heart and he's looking for anything to fill it. And, and the episode is sort of punctuated with him trying to talk to Rava. He tells his, his tells some assistant to tell Jess and send flowers to Rava. You know, she, I think she's doing the right thing by, by not staying with him. I think it would be it's probably toxic for her. It's not so good for him either, but, you know, she really makes an effort to try and, like, she said, you know, she says, let's just make this as nice as possible, And but he's just so broken by it. Um, so, you know, that, that I think, endears us to Ken a little bit without, um, you know, having to villainize Rava because she does come across as, you know, very rational and a good mother, and um, you know, she still keeps involved in, in the lives of the Roys, so. Yeah, Rava doesn't scan as that likable to me necessarily i mean certainly sympathetic because obviously the relationship is very difficult and she does seem to be a good mother but i mean you know just knowing about the kind of person that would marry you know a kendall roy in real life um you know i i don't uh you know i i do have a lot of skepticism um about about her character and just uh you know i think the the scene of them uh having sex is you know, just another, it's, it sort of connects to, you know, like we were talking about with Nate and Shiv, I think there's an obvious attraction to power, um, that's going on there, you know, while obviously I think in a lot of their interactions, she is obviously the more reasonable party. I do have a fair amount of skepticism about her. Um, but I understand what you're saying, Gabby. I think what, what really helps is that the show sort of, or I mean, the writers sort of tread a very thin line with the characterization of Kendall by both like, playing up his desperation, playing up that, like, he is a little bit pathetic, but he's also, like, trying to be, you know, trying to, like, genuinely right the ship. He's, like, invested so much of, like, his personhood and, like, keeping this, like, company alive, and he, like, loves and hates his father, and there's all this stuff sort of, like, boiling together. I really do think, like, the show doesn't work without Jeremy Strong. He's sort of, like, holding this whole thing up on his shoulders in a way. Like, that was the thing that, like, Replay played on the rewatch where I was like, "Oh, this guy's like literally putting everything together." Uh, His face. Can we just talk about his face? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like very weathered and beaten down. Uh, Oh my god! This at the very end when they follow his face. There's so many when he first walks into the office in the dark and turns the lights on and you follow. Sorry, Vikram, but no, like, no, you no. are singing my song. Right. Jeremy Strong <laughs> is so amazing in this role. It's just unbelievable. And the show absolutely would not work without him. No, I'm yeah. just totally yeah, piggybacking with you. Um, <laughs> but I would say he's not a little bit pathetic. He is a lot pathetic. Yeah, 100%. 100%. <laughs> of course. I was yeah, trying. I was so, trying to. So, I was trying to soft pedal it a little bit, but yeah, no, he's he's a very <laughs> pathetic man. Uh, um, I mean, yeah, we see it a lot. We see him trying to sort of like exert his, uh, you know, what he thinks is is sort of his alpha ness. Like, you know, so so what's happening is that the stock is is dropping quickly, and if the stock goes below one thirty, then the bank can take full repayment in the form of three point two five billion dollars, which um, is totally untenable and you know we, we know from a scene with jerry roman and ken that um you know there's no good options but how about that um first phone call with the bank where ken really tries to uh you know wave his dick around and um he says actually the line is my dad's a bastard they need to know i'm a bastard too well the you're thing not with a logan is- roy bastard <laughs> 
Well, the thing with that call is he doesn't even really try that hard. He just sort of, you know, he's 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 very tentative about it, but he can't even commit to really being that big of a bastard um, because the only thing he he does is tell the guy to fuck off once, and then right. there's this long <laughs> agonizing, <silence>. absolutely <laughs> fatal pause on the line where the guy is just like. Right heavy breathing and sighing and Jerry's face is like (laughs) (laughs) it's like 20 seconds and it's literally like the thing it reminded me of and I hate making references to the office but it's like it's literally like that scene where Michael is negotiating with Daryl and just like sits there in silence and then goes I am declining to speak first right 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 right. oh that's (laughs) a perfect uh, parallel so I mean (laughs) So, I mean, it's it seems like, you know, when Jerry comes in and Ken goes, the new plan is, you know, it's a work in progress, but tentative title is go fuck yourself. Jerry seems to be like, no, we had a plan. Like, the implication is we <laughs> talked about something and was like, we had a strategy and you ditched this because, you know, your ex-wife said something that she was not even really paying attention to on this last minute phone call that you made because you needed emotional support. And of course, Roman is listening in on the other room. But the thing I, I always remember about that call is the way that the banker guy, whose voice is, I don't know whose voice that is on the other end of the line, but I love the way that the guy just says, hi, Kendall, great to connect. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I think of that every single time I am on a conference call at work. There's a lot of great like uh, corporate speak involved like in this episode. Like there's the whole... You know, we're storytellers, right? Like, let's do a documentary on the Epic of Gilgamesh. Like, archetypal <laughs> question. Or, or, like, we need to get back into, like, multi-platform digital content. Grace, like, all, you all... see Ken getting so excited, all the oh, wheels yeah. turning. Or, yeah. like, inter- like, I need more interactive digital media. And I'm just like, right. oh, man, this is, this is just how everything is now. It's great. When yeah. Roman goes, when, when he's, like, talking about, like, he's like, alphabet. Facebook and Roman's like, yeah, internet fucking game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That may be one of the best lines of the entire show. <laughs> it's 2018. It's so good. And he, you know, the playfulness between the two of them during that scene is fantastic. But yeah. um, it all boils down to that line. The fucking internet man is a game changer. Yeah. <laughs> well, we should we should talk about that scene because it's obviously the centerpiece of the episode, and it reveals, I think, so much about Kendall's idea of who he is. Because in that scene, I think he is playing to the hilt his idea of who he wants to be, and you see how it goes south for him. And I, it was one of the guys on the Ringer podcast who said this, but I think about it. And every time I watch that scene, which is that Kendall is the pivot to video guy. Like yeah. that's the extent yep. of his understanding of the media landscape of what he needs to do to survive in the market of his quote unquote big ideas that he got from business school is just that we need to be quote unquote innovators. And Disruptors. he would, yeah, he would Disruptors, absolutely yeah. be a pivot to video guy. If he I mean, he brings up TED or something talks. Like that. TED talks. He's like, we need TED talks. 2018. Yeah. yeah. yeah he's, he's like, we need to be challenging, innovating, being bold, disrupting. I mean, yeah, it's a total boilerplate, like, tech language that really has no meaning 
Yeah, it's incoherent. It, 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 yeah. it, there's no strategy there. It is a bunch of buzzwords and things that he's picked up on. He has this idea of himself as a smart guy, but it isn't based on anything. Um, so let's just run through that scene, because one of my favorite things about the scene uh, that I picked up on rewatch is that right at the beginning of the scene where he's walking to this all-hands meeting that he's called to address the company, Carolina, their head of PR, is sort of very gently saying, my only concern is, is this a little bit too aggressive? And he goes, no, 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 it's the right thing to do, et cetera. And then it's immediately after the meeting, Carolina is just like harried in like a uh, crisis mode, trying to solve the mess that he just created like she knew he would. And he's yelling at her to fix it faster. Right. Similarly, without going into the scene, but the same kind of parallel happens with Jerry. Well, I guess it is in the scene. He's like, I want all your ideas. Nothing is going to be turned down. You know, all of you bring me your lifeboats. And then immediately after the scene and after Carolina, Jerry and he are in his office and Jerry says, you know, I have a few ideas. And he immediately turns her down after saying he wants everyone's <laughs> ideas. He says, no, I don't want secondhand ideas, Jerry. And like the one thing we know about Jerry is she's incredibly competent and smart and savvy. And he just totally disregards, you know, any idea. He won't even listen to it. Um, yeah, so the, the scene starts in this in this boardroom oh. <laughs> with him um, harking back to to episode one in the meeting with Lawrence. So he he gets in, sits down. He goes, you know, just wanted to get the gang together early in my tenure to say, yeah, yo, <laughs> and like he thinks this is like a very very cool, you know, um, new media approach to uh, to leadership. <laughs> But, yeah, there's kind of just crickets in the room as soon as he says that. Similar to uh, You Guys Want to Fuck when he does it in the first episode in the meeting about uh, about Walter. So I, I like I like any sort of weird reference to like his like frat boy ish nature. I think there's that bit in the bathroom and it's so funny. I think it's just hilarious where he's like, I forget what he says, but he's like, we two sisters, like, getting it done. And he's, like, trying to, like, <laughs> trying real hard to be, like, fucking down with this guy. And it just, he sounds like a clown. It's so great. Uh, and it's similar, like, where he's like, yo, man, like, we, you know, we, you know. And then, and then he's very quick to go, this isn't a brainstorm. As soon as, like, Roman starts fucking everything up, he's like, he's like no, 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 hold on. Like, I just want to get everyone on board. And it's all, like, this mix of, like, real sort of straightforward, old school corporate nonsense and this whole, like, you know, I'm a cool, cool young guy who's like with it and knows that. Yeah, that that's pretty great. Yeah, I mean, Roman is. I think you know we talked we talked before about the idea of the corporate family, whereas the family here is the element that is obviously going wrong for Ken. Like immediately, like the first sign that he's not in control of the meeting is that he doesn't have control of Roman. Right. They are not coordinated, and he doesn't have. They are not on the same page, and he can't even really effectively manage him in that meeting. So that's immediately the tell that he's not handling this right. I'm just going to stand. My back's fucked up. I got a new trainer. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Dad put a sock on today. He's just doing great. The sock sock thing's amazing. I mean, if you just... If you just step back from the context of what you know about the characters and just pretend you're somebody sitting in that room listening to that meeting, it is a five-alarm fire. Like, those kids have no idea what they are doing. 
Um, yeah. Just like everything that comes out of his mouth, like the language about lifeboats, etc., which is so specifically funny because it's clearly a metaphor that he thought out and prepared and just did not realize how it sounds like, okay, everybody panic, we are safe. <laughs> because steady as she goes... Hits the iceberg. Yeah. <laughs> like, what? He like yeah. rehearsed that in the mirror after his, you know, Tai Chi session in his his home oh. gym. Like, it's just the oh the, yes, the oh the, op- God, the, opening the opening montage of Ken doing Tai Chi completely <laughs> alone, waking up at four thirty, getting yeah. to the office before everybody else for what reason? Who knows? Just oh, so depressing and so specific. I like. I how- would say. The the scene uh, when they're in the in the boardroom, it, I guess it's not the board member, so it's the staff meeting. I, I know I tend to be hyperbolic, but that is one of the top funniest scenes of the season, in my opinion. Um, it's just so good that yo delivery, all of it, it's great. And the, and the like I said, the playfulness between um, Rome and and Kendall. I really like how he's uh. He gets really pissed when the the media is reporting it as like icebergs, and he's like, he's like, I said lifeboats. I didn't say iceberg. And it's like, buddy, <laughs> the existence I, of the lifeboats I, implies the iceberg. It's, it's, I, fi- I find the outrage to be pretty amusing. Uh, right, and then like Brendan said, like then he looks at Carolina and he's like, well, fix this faster. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Okay, you know. Um, yeah. So speaking of uh, Roman, sort of just wandering and and fucking things up <laughs> he doesn't really know what to do with himself um as coo and and this is sort of the first time <clears throat> that we get like a sort of rated r moment i think on succession um <laughs> it's just quite funny and i don't know if when you guys were first watching this scene if immediately that's like what you knew he was gonna do when he goes and uh closes the curtains and uh is looking out Onto the, you know, Manhattan skyline on top of the world, not really knowing what to do with his power on the computer. Meanwhile, there's, you know, just like an influx of messages. The stock is dropping and then Roman just takes his dick out and jizzes on (laughs) the window. Well, I think in the moment it registers as just kind of, uh, it registers as this very kind of sort of shocking, but just sort of funny interlude. But like everything else in the show, the humor is tied to something about the character because this is the first tell that we get that Rome's connection to his sexuality is incredibly, I think, fraught. Uh, he does not have a healthy relationship with sex uh, and with his body and uh, with you know uh, physical relationships with other people or his ability to be intimate, which comes up a lot in subsequent episodes. And although you don't ha- really have a hint of that yet here, this is completely consistent with the way we see him behave later. Yeah, totally. I mean, even just the the whole having a personal trainer thing and him needing to like tout that was weird to me because you know it's not like he's a bad looking guy. Um, in fact, a lot of people find him really attractive. So just that he's all like, oh, yeah, you know, my, my, my trainer, man, my back. You, know, you, you see, yeah, the areas where, where he's insecure and where it comes into play later for sure. So, yeah, but yeah I, thought, I thought that was pretty funny. But then, um, yeah, we should, uh, we should get into, into Stewie because into Stewie. That, was, uh, that was actually funny. Like, I don't, I don't know what that's called in, in filmmaking, but the scene of Roman jerking off on the window and just as he's coming, there's like an espresso machine. Yeah, that's like, it's, <laughs> it's called a money shot, Gabby. <laughs> 
I will I will say something about the that scene really quickly, which is that there's the there's the whole like there's the jerking off scene and the triumphant music and the cut to like the email messages going in. And then there, what I think is great is that like I think like what is it like five minutes later? It's just him struggling to clean it. Like <laughs> like that's like, like that's it's like, like Ken they, cleaning the bathroom in the first episode right, after he right, wrecks where, it. Yeah, where he's just like it's like not working and he has to like spit on the window and it becomes this like just like like absolute illustration of all the shame and ridiculousness of like you jerking off on the window of your corner office like yeah so it's pretty good pretty, i also just want to i also just want to bring in real quick this thing that uh, our friend joel gord said uh about uh uh Culkin's performance which i think about all the time which is that he compared it to a 90s robert downey jr performance yeah his characterization of roman i'm always thinking about that yeah, um, watching like, him. It's always like a little spiky, a little reckless. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Well, I was just gonna just gonna introduce the introduction to Stewie, which after the espresso, we hear him say, "The thing about capitalism is," <laughs> 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 and like I, I was gonna try to transcribe it, but it didn't make sense anyways. But the like, capitalism has got its issues. It's so fucking funny. <laughs> And, and it's just so great. And Well, I was going to say, before we actually get to Stewie, because I think that'll take us through the end of the episode, um, I wanted to briefly bring in uh, Sandy Furness, uh, who is the other big player who is only in like a scene and a half in this episode. Um, and it's not clear at this point exactly who he is, but he's implied to be a power player on Logan's level uh, because uh, when he stops by, Jerry announces him, and Ken's very flustered, and he goes, well, Pepsi doesn't just drop in to see Coke. So he's clearly implied <laughs> to be, again, the head of another big corporation. He's played by Larry Pine, who's a, a great character actor, uh, and the scene is just sort of fraught with this kind of, maybe not menace, but ambiguity about his intentions. Ken is trying to game size him up. He clearly doesn't trust him, uh, but it's just very much like, you know, if you need anything, you can come to me. And like Frank, Sandy is somebody who is, you know, a surrogate father figure for Ken. And there are a number of these throughout the series. Um, but obviously at this point, Ken knows that he shouldn't trust him. And he's trying to sort of defend his interests against what he sees as an interloper and quickly has him escorted out of the building. Well, it's just interesting. They're talking in coded language the whole time, like saying the opposite of what they really mean. And it reminded me of the Annie Hall scene, you know, right, right after... Uh, Alvy, yeah, when Alvy meets Annie um, after tennis, maybe, and they're on they're on the balcony, and you know what they're saying, uh, and then on the screen, it's transcribed as the closed captions show, you know, what they're really saying, and you know, I, that's kind of what's going on here, except we just know they're not being truthful. They're using this coded language, like, oh, I'm here to help you anytime, you know, but they're really saying fuck you to each other. Uh, I, th I think Kendall actually ho holds his own in that conversation pretty well, better than I expected. Agreed. Especially because right as he's like going into the room to talk to him, Jerry says, your father would have shot him on sight. And Ken's like, I don't need to know what my father would have done right now. And I mean, that's just, you know, a, a thread throughout the entire series of just Ken, you know, always of, of needing to live up to dad. And, you know, are you doing this in the way that dad would have done it? Do you want to call your dad? But, you know, I, I think he, uh, it's, it's one of Ken's stronger scenes in terms of, uh, of, you know, sort of, the big dick competition not to you know re keep going back to that but um you know that's sort of logan's mo and, and i think uh 
I think he handled that well with Sandy. And I think it's a rare scene where Ken correctly apprehends someone's motivations and how to handle them. It's one of the only instances, probably, in which Ken is able to do that um, because he because this person has such a reputation. But totally you, until episode seven. Yeah. <laughs> who do you think Sandy is based on? I, I was trying to figure that out on this rewatch. Like, I was like, what is the real world yeah. analog of that guy? Because I think you can kind of do that for a lot of them, but I don't know about him. Well, I mean, yeah. there's there, there are so many figures that Logan himself could be based on That's true. Oh, that, yes. you know, it's, you know, you could sub in any of them really for Sandy. I mean, like the sort of machinations that Sandy gets involved in, you know, really only befit a certain number of people at that level, you know, sure. you're, um, your Murdochs and your Mercers and Sinclairs. Um, but I, I was just curious. I was just like, I was just trying to do the math in my head. I was like, who, who do you think this guy could be? <laughs> yeah. We might just like, I, I don't know who it might be, but then as, as he sort of appears in, in later episodes and <clears throat> he's at that party and oh, yeah. like, what kind of guy like that? You know, I mean, you know that they exist, but you know, which one of those billionaires goes to those parties? Goes actually or, goes to those. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, you know, cause he's, an older guy too. So I mean, not old, but yeah. So, so I don't know. I, I, it would be interesting if they have the directors or the, the creators have somebody in mind as, as a direct analog, but, um, well, they're always fairly explicit about, you know, they're, we're not basing them on any particular person. Yeah. And, you know, that's really the strength of the show is that they can say that. And it's not bullshit. They really mean it. They are taking these qualities that are present in a lot of these actually existing, plutocrats and titans of business and they are combining them and synthesizing them and saying what are the commonalities why are these people the way they are and they're able to create original (laughs) compelling dramatic characters from that but i think sandy is a little bit of an outlier because although he has this role of antagonist um we really don't learn very much about him personally or even what his sort of position in the business world is other than that it's implied to be quite significant Uh, i I think that I think that line of thinking makes sense until the political stuff later on, where it becomes very clear that it's like Bernie and Hillary are the are the analogs for what is it, Eric Bogosian and uh, uh, whoever, whoever plays uh, Shiv's uh, yeah. client. Uh, Joy. She's not Hillary. She's Joyce. Kamala Harris. Uh, <laughs> I, I think she's Hillary. Well, she's the New I York attorney. She's and- she's Kamala Harris. I was totally Maybe. thinking yeah. about this during this rewatch. Is it Kamala or is it Hillary? You know, and I get it. Could this be debate. a mix, just like yeah, 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 yeah. Let's get to Stewie. Uh, so this is, I mean, one of our favorite. I think actually one of our favorite sort of supporting characters in this universe is Stewie Hosseini, who is Kendall's college buddy. Clearly, somebody he did a lot of drugs with at one point. Uh, Stewie is now in private equity. And he's somebody that Ken goes to uh, on a couple of occasions in this episode uh, for advice and then later for help. I wanted to know, ask really quickly if you knew who the actor was or if anyone did. Yeah, I, I, I do. I've seen him before. He's uh, Arian Moyad, I think. Yeah, that's OK. Yeah, that, you got it. I think that's <laughs> yeah, I think it's good. Uh, he's so he was um I think he was like he was in some comedy stuff. I think he was like a comedy guy, like kind of around, not really on TV for a while. But then he was in like Madam Secretary forever. I know, I know that. <laughs> One of those, uh, yeah. But, he's very uh, funny. Yeah, he he's he's got a great he's got a great delivery. Um, I know he used to be on old Conan bits and like 
the nineties. Uh, huh. But or yeah. like or like the early two thousands. Uh, but yeah, no, he's he he he's always been like a pretty. He's got a pretty good delivery about him. I think. He, he's, yeah, he he's got great delivery, and his mannerisms are something like just these little touches, like the way he eats the donut or whatever it is that he's eating is like licking it. And just, just, you know, I, all these kind of bizarre things that certainly I don't think are scripted. But, um, yeah, so we meet we meet Stewie and, uh, you know, Kendall kind of tells him the, the problem that he's facing, which is the major debt. Well, first, the stock price they talk about and or, or huge um, drop. And uh, one of my favorite but sad, of course, lines um, Stewie delivers here, which is uh, – and bro – when he's talking about the market and investors and uh you know he's like they don't love the field they don't love and then he's and then the final dagger is and bro they don't love you and (laughs) and you know it's one of the first but many times we hear um kendall gets to hear that like people don't like him whatsoever yeah he's so funny and he's also just really sharp like as as they're walking and this was something I hadn't really thought about either prior but he's talking about like how they could do anything in the world you know something that's kind of brought up in the finale they could go be scuba divers um and do whatever but he's like you know you could get into tech Shiv could be uh do her politics things and Roman could snort his you know body weight and he's like and you guys just be so fucking rich and happy like why are you putting yourself through this live unha- unhappily ever after oh yeah that's <laughs> and that's that's and like right the great finishing is like and you guys could live unhappily ever after and this and is like, after this is after he offers right to just buy out yeah they just, offer to buy the company out right yeah i do i do like that uh he describes it at one point he goes you could be ugly petro ruble rich I think that's a that's a, a yeah good. that's absolute that's that exact scene that's that precise yeah, yeah. scene and it's like he's so right you know why are you putting yourself through this Ken like and we all kind of know the tragic answer to that you know it was he's just searching for something and approval from dad and living up to dad and all you know these kind of emotional voids that Kendall has but um it, yeah Stewie so that's the first scene and we get to see him in two cafe scenes. Well, I just like the second one, and Vic already mentioned the best line, which is when uh, Ken comes back to propose that they uh, give them the $3 billion to buy out the bank and then come in and take a controlling stake in the company, and then they'd be together, quote-unquote, sisters doing it for themselves. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> which is where I think, you know, that line is not easy to say, let alone no. with a straight face like he does. So I mean that's that's the Emmy clip for me. And with the with the intent that's behind it, yeah. Well, and and like they're in the room and Stewie's doing blow. You know, they're in the bathroom. Yeah, I mean, I think this is the first time in the show that we actually see drug use and we actually see a sex scene, and both um, are kind of like pathetic, which to me was refreshing because I feel like in the era of streaming, um, so many shows are just like chomping at the bit to show gratuitous sex. And especially when it's a a show about wealthy people, the drug use, it's, you know, some orgy scene where, you know, we're sniffing Coke off of, you know, a stripper's navel. Meanwhile, like 
Stewie and Ken are in this cafe bathroom in, in Midtown somewhere in broad daylight. And, you know, Stewie's doing a line while Ken is facing the other way. And they're trying to talk about solutions to a three and a half billion dollar problem. And then later, this, the, the sex scene with, with Rava is, is kind of embarrassing for Kendall, too. And, and that's just something for me that was like very refreshing about this show. And I think that I was drawn to because, um, you know, I think I'm it's just the gratuitous sex and drug stuff is a little bit tiresome and it doesn't really show the full picture. Like just because somebody is uh, super rich doesn't mean that, um, you know, all of those things are always going to look glamorous. Like sometimes you will just be blowing a line in a shitty bathroom. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, the yeah, like you say, the scenes that you're talking about, there are all things that, you know, tell us things about those characters. And, you know, there are plenty of HBO shows that fall victim to just the need to show quote unquote premium content or whatever you're going to call it, the nudity and drug use, etc. Um, Game of Thrones has it. Uh, plenty of shows have it. But everything about the direction of these scenes, you know, when they appear on the show is very purposeful. Um, and that is something that is rare, not just on cable, but on TV and movies in general to see direction that is, you know, has a clear intent with every scene. And they're showing what they're showing for a reason. Agreed. I do. I do like that. He's doing blow off the iPhone screen. I think that's a, that was a pretty great, pretty, pretty great little detail where it's just like. It's like, of course, he's not gonna like do it off the toilet. He's he's, he's, a, he's a he's a respectable gentleman. He's gonna he's gonna gonna do it off of like the fucking six hundred dollar phone he has, of course. Yeah, it's the special iPhone that has, people get to do blow off of. Right, right, right. And it's kind of uh, reminiscent kind of when in the in the pilot when Rava is talking to him and she mentions him doing blow off the iPad. Yeah, <laughs> the kids' iPad. <laughs> right? Yeah, the kids' iPad. Yeah. Which okay. I mean, if you if if you if you take that to its logical conclusion, it must have been a lot more blow. Because right, 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 right. I I it definitely was thinking about Ken's sobriety in this episode, and not to skip ahead, but since we're talking about drugs, I was you know really impressed as someone who has is familiar with with those kinds of things i was really impressed like that he hasn't already relapsed like yeah. or in the I next know. episode like after his father which we'll get to but you know like this is he's dealing with some intense shit and like he stays steady as she goes he will hit the iceberg but it, it's not yeah so i mean <laughs> but yeah when i first saw that bathroom shows yeah how strong kendall is i, I think thought for in some ways i thought for sure he was gonna I thought for sure he was going to cave in the bathroom scene because they sort of introduce it by Stewie saying in the cafe, like, let's just, you know, do what we used to do and bounce some ideas off of each other. And Ken's like, no, not me. And then you you think Im- like immediately they're going to show a contrast and like it's going to pan to Ken just like blowing a line. But they don't. And I like that they did that. Um, again, unexpected, not typical of sort of the way that I think drugs are often portrayed um and sobriety on on tv um it shows you know a lot more nuance than we're usually afforded by by television when it comes to drugs and sobriety and and the complications of that and i liked that ken didn't um just cave in that bathroom because i mean yeah he's in a really tough spot and probably would have helped him get some ideas going but he did it anyway 
you know, they they figure out a deal. So yeah, so the deal they strike is that I think uh, Stewie's private equity company takes over most of Waystar Royco. I think he says later that um, the family is left with a thirty six percent stake. So they take over a, a more than controlling interest in the company in exchange for the thrill the three point two five billion cash that they need to get the bank off their back. Uh, so Ken's very happy about that little win. Uh, but as we mentioned before, Greg later comes upon uh, Stewie um, and uh, Sandy Furness. He recognizes Sandy uh, from being in the building, I think, and waves to him. But the two of them are deep in conversation about what we don't know. Uh, but once again, Greg is this person who, although he looms large physically, is otherwise invisible to the people of importance in this world. And they don't notice at all that he's witnessing uh, the transaction that's taking place. But will this come back to haunt them, Their, <laughs> we'll his invisibility? I mean, I, I think, Greg, I think that's a big part of kind of what we're going to see next se- season. But again, I'm jumping ahead, so. Yeah, then the last major scene of this episode is when uh, Ken is finally able to see his father. Um, he goes to visit uh, his father where he's at hospice and at his apartment, and he's watching the TV news and this palatial bedroom that he has um and uh tells him about the deal like quite proudly like he's he's like dad he's for once i think he feels like he's got some leverage over the old man because he goes you know dad you really didn't make such a good deal but i made a good deal and i fixed this for us and he tells them about the private equity deal and of course the exchange that comes at the end of that is that uh, uh logan summons all of the life that is in his body to tell his son you are a fucking idiot and <laughs> sends Killer. him out on the streets stunned yeah and in that scene kendall's really trying to like he's also using you know like what we were talking about at the beginning of the episode um you know, very much like business school boardroom speak. He says, you know, Carolina says there's a lot of positive analyst noise around this dad. Like, I think we really got it. And um, again, it just shows the stark contrast between what Ken sort of conceives as competence and um, what's necessary, you know, growth. We want the charts to go up. All of our charts go down. And, you know, all Logan has to do is say, you're a fucking idiot. And, the entire world comes crashing down for Ken. And again, sort of this, this generational difference of how Logan sees the world and how Logan has done business for himself and gotten ahead. Um, and, and Ken's idea of needing to adapt and evolve or die that, you know, is obviously the, you know, one of the premier tensions of the show. So, and we also didn't talk about Shiv's visit to, to Logan's room, which she eventually sort of, bulldozes her way in past Marsha and Logan is definitely just really really messed up on pain meds and must um, mistake her for somebody else um, and well you hope he does <laughs> I, I think I think he is I, I don't think he realizes that it's his daughter there's, um, a, there's a nice bit of foreshadowing with that I didn't notice that in the first run but like there's that woman yes. they come, like the first time they're there there's like a nurse in tears as they're like walking down the stairs. The yep, other ones, yeah, like, exactly. Like yeah. you know, it's just it's the morphine. Like we don't know, and she's like, no, I know, I know. And yeah. I think that was a nice way not to put it like it like not to hang a lampshade on it really, but like I thought that was that was pretty nice. It was a pretty good way to do it. Yeah, and it also implies that Marsha has very good reason for not wanting exactly. to let the kids yeah, see yeah. their father. She um, wasn't just being like withholding for no reason. Yeah. 
Right, so it reinforces that once again, Shiv, you know, misapprehends Marsha and her motivations and is out of her depth in dealing with her. I don't want to get into like a protracted discussion of, you know, business because I know we were running long. Um, but I just I, I just do think it's remarkable how I think Ken, who's supposed to be so business savvy, thinks of private equity as this really good thing that's going to save him <laughs> yeah. as opposed to I think you know what Logan is Logan understands intuitively which is that private equity is a device that you use to latch onto another company and suck their lifeblood out until you can discard them yeah. you know so what parasite mm-hmm. did you just attach to me is his reaction there right. you're you're 100% not right. a lifeboat <laughs> it's yeah. not a lifeboat it's the iceberg <laughs> Well, the way Kendall sees it is like, oh, this is my buddy. Like, this is my old, like, buddy. It's going to be fine. And then, like, you know, it's it's like, we're talking about generational differences. Is like both of them have different versions of short-sighted business thinking. Like, both of them are are faulty and foolish in radically different directions. And one of them is like, oh, I can trust this private equity guy. He's like my friend. And then, of course, Logan's like, You're, you were a goddamn idiot. Like, what's wrong with you? Like. Yeah. Well, there's that there's that scene later. It's in episode six where he's coming to Stewie with something important, and he goes, "I can trust you, right?" And Stewie goes, "No, no, right." Yeah. But on business, but on business stuff, I can trust you, right? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> and so. so that's Ken's folly. Like Stewie's never like he's never trying to pretend that he's in every has everybody's best interest at heart. But you know, Ken believes. Oh, you know, because we're buddies. So I think that's a good place to, to wrap uh, for here. I'm, uh, I think we found a lot to talk about there. Um, Vic, thank you so much for joining us. That was a really good conversation. Um, for sure, man. Thanks for I having hope, me on. Yeah, thank you so much, I hope we can, have you, so back, uh, hope we can yeah. have you back later Thanks. in the season or maybe for season two. Sure. Yeah, man. Whatever works. <laughs> Thanks so much. No problem. No problem. It's good to meet you guys. Great to meet you. Great to connect. Great to, yeah, great to connect. <laughs> Uh, all right folks next time we'll be joined to talk about episode four the sad sack wasp trap uh we're gonna have a special guest for that one as well so we look forward to hearing uh everybody then so until next time this has been the roycast thanks folks Bye. bye